Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Thank you for listening to or watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Pastor Ernest Grant from uh, in Camden, New Jersey. What's up, thank Pastor you, Grant? Lisa, what's going on? So glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for agreeing to be on uh, the podcast. You wrote a blog uh, for us. I think it's two. I think you have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One is about uh, block apologetics. Um, Mm -hmm. It's about urban apologetics and inner city specifically. And Mm -hmm. uh, the other one was uh, whitewash Christianity. Okay. Yeah. 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 So for those who don't uh, haven't seen your blogs and read your bio, tell our audience who don't know you a little bit about yourself. Sure. Sure. My name is, uh, as Lisa mentioned, I'm Pastor Ernie Grant. Um, I'm the Connections Pastor at Epiphany Fellowship Church in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, we're a church plant of uh, Dr. Eric Mason in Epiphany, Philadelphia. Uh, my job, I'm the connections pastor. So that means that I'm constantly discovering new and innovative ways to reach people for Christ in the inner city. So I graduated from Reform Seminary. I'm currently working on my doctorate in organizational leadership. Um, and I frequently blog about any the intersection of Christ cult, Christ and culture. So uh, I've been on Jude 3 Project, written for them, uh, ran Network, Christianity Today, um, and Desiring God thus far. So I'm hoping to expand again to some other outlets. So I'm grateful to be here today. That's dope. That's dope. So today we're going to talk about the theology of Nick Cannon. And so uh, this is this is funny because I never thought this would be a topic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cannon recently was on The Breakfast Club, and he's been wearing these turbans Right. Um, and so Charlemagne was like, um, you know, what's up with the turban? What's, you know, and he was like, you know, it's this whole sovereignty of God thing. I take it back to the Morris thought. And I'm, uh, I can't remember how he said it. He said, yeah, he said I, 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 got, I got you. He said that Christianity is his first language, but he's fluent in many other spiritualities. That's yeah. And I was like, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> so, I, I, I was perplexed too. I just sat there. I, I was trying to figure out why he had on the, the, the turban. I said, man, they said, yo, what's up with the, the diamond studded turban? I was like, why does he have a diamond studded turban on? So I was really interested to hear what it is, what it is that he had to say. Mm-hmm. So uh, this got me thinking because I'm really passionate about, you know, equipping our community. And I know a lot of people heard that. And, and as you were saying from the comments, a lot of people are like, oh, that's, you know, deep. Cause you know, people hear things and they kind of gravitate to it and think yeah. that it's something new um, that they should be connected to. Um, so from, from your studies, what do the Moors believe? Yeah. What yeah. Yeah. The Moors Temple science. Um, it started from a, a gentleman named uh, Timothy Drew, who would eventually become the noble Drew Ali. Drew Ali was born in uh, 1886. We're not sure if he was was the son of slaves or whether he was adopted by a Moroccan father and a Cherokee mother. We're kind of uncertain on that. But as the Moors tell the story, he left uh, North Carolina where he was born um, when he was 16. And some gypsy, a band of gypsies, got, took him. Um, and he took him overseas to Egypt, Morocco, the Middle East. 
and while he was there, he met some Egyptian cult leader uh, who said, you know, you are a prophet, clearly. I don't know how they came to that conclusion, but you're a prophet. You've come in the line of Jesus, Confucius, Buddha, and Muhammad. So therefore, he said that he received something called the, the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran, which differs greatly from the Quran of Islam. Uh, it's about a 45 chapter book. Um, half of it is actually a, a plagiarism of a document called the Aquarian Gospel. The other 15 chapter or 25 chapters are uh, a plagiarism of unto thee. So he combines these two and he begins to say that black people are the ancient Moabites and we should then call ourselves the Moors. So uh, this movement, it really caught a lot of steam in the like the early 1900s. So he established his first temple in Newark, New Jersey, like 1913. Uh, there was a break off around 916-ish. You know, he began to set up in Chicago. And 1926 is when he really started to catch whim. Um, and once that happened, he ended up dying really suspiciously after their second national con uh, convocation, a convention in 1928. Um, but the membership continued to grow steadily until around the 1930s, but it was eventually eclipsed by the Nation of Islam and Father Muhammad, which really started to cause the, the, the Moors Temple signs, the Moors, if you will, to really fall to the background. So, so yeah, so, so he started that. So it's still, you know, a, a prevalent movement, if you will, in the inner city, though it's dying, though it's not as forceful as it is, but I mean, as it used to be, but you do still see a Moorish presence, specifically in the city that I am in, like Camden, New Jersey. I do see them, but but not in the numbers that they were in like the early 1900s when they first started, for sure. So what are their core values, their core beliefs, and kind of how does Christianity, uh, Orthodox Christianity differ? Yeah, yeah. That, it's interesting. So so you got to... So, Anytime I, I like and I approach another doc, uh, another sort of cult, I like to get the historical context of, of how it all developed. So you got it. So mm -hmm. Timothy Drew was born in North Carolina. So he's in the Jim Crow South at this time. So his parents, if they were ex-slaves, which the narrative says that he is, um, he would have seen a number of atrocities. You know, he would have seen uh, women being hanged. He would have seen people being whipped. He would have seen the mistreatment of African-Americans. Um, so so one of the things that that he really upholds is this whole idea of black liberation. OK, when we were bought over by uh, this, by the slave traders during the during the transatlantic slave trade, what they hid was our Moabite uh, identity, that we were actually kings and princes and, and princesses and queens that actually conquered uh spain in the eighth century you know so he's so he's all about black empowerment and and i sort of was sympathetic to that but if you think about some of the stuff that he says in many in his writings in the book of the holy quran i mean it's just antithetical to the biblical text so he says stuff like you know death is no enemy uh there's no such thing as sin sin is washed away by the purity of life uh, i got another quote the the only devil which men must redeem is the self, the lower self. If man would fit, find his savior, he must look within. So he really took Jesus and made Jesus just a, 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 not even a prophet, sort of in the same pantheon of, as Buddha and Confucius. 
He said that Jesus is is just, I mean, being in heaven is a state of mind. Allah never really said that there was a heaven. So a summation of sort of some of the thoughts is there's no heaven and hell. Uh, man was not created in the image of God. The sins are not washed away by Jesus. And a person must look within for salvation. So uh, the devil is not any enemy of mankind. And Jesus was ultimately just the student of the Hindu scriptures and nothing else. So it's sort of convoluted. Uh, it's a convoluted worldview, and some Moors will, will will have different vantage points and perspectives. But but I think some of his stuff was birthed out of a response to racism in the Jim Crow South. So when the Great Migration occurs in ni- between 1910 and the 1970s, Timothy Drew finds himself in the northern state, Chicago, Newark. He's in that area, and he's speaking to a disenfranchised group of people about how they can find their identity and their blackness and how it's not something that needs to be eschewed, but rather something that needs to be celebrated. So during this period, he was really trying to empower blacks, but he was doing it in a theologically and biblically perverse way, making himself a false prophet um, and ultimately, the Moors, there's still a small presence. There's still a small presence in the inner city, but they've continued to die off. And he's found himself. They found themselves as a movement that's just become a disparate one that does not have any real traction at all. But I and I'm not being sympathetic to him necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, mm-hmm. I get that he's a false prophet. But in order for us to understand, we got to gain the historical context of what he was trying to do in order to be able to properly engage those who are adherents of his view. That's what I'm arguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's, that's a big part of it, because a lot of these Black cults are looking for identity. Yes, and so yes. Since, since there's this, um, this feeling of being lesser, this idea that Black people are lesser than, than whites, it's almost fighting supremacy with supremacy, in a sense. Sure, so, sure. You hear Nick Cannon talk about, you know, the black man is the original man. And so that whole concept and the sovereignty concept, when he was speaking of the sovereignty concept and the black man is the original man, um, in the Morse thought, what what kind of line of thinking is that? Yeah, yeah. It's it's that anthropomorphic, that, that anthrocentric thought that I think um sort of the Moors fall into. But to be honest with you, Nick, so during his interview in The Breakfast Club, he really nestled that statement between uh, a comment about his failed marriage with Mariah Carey and sort of plugging his headphones. So it was only really a small clip. So he really didn't explain what it meant to be uh, primarily fluent in Christianity, but follow in a line with other spiritualities. You know, but, but but I think it really proved that Nick really didn't have a grasp of all of the stuff that he was learning because he would see that they're just not congruent views. Mm-hmm. So you can't be a Moorish temple science adherent or be a Moor and then believe that you can be a Christian. They're diametrically opposed one with another. So I would have loved to hear him explain a little more about why he felt the way he did because they they just don't align one with another. So 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 Nick says he gets in the interview 
Charlemagne, who, who's the, the antagonist, asked him, Nick, why do you have on a, a turban, a diamond-studded turban? So he says, you know, well, I've been studying other national, I've been studying other spiritualities, specifically Islam, specifically Moors and Christianity, et cetera, et cetera. But Moors, the Moorish men don't wear turbans. They wear fezes. The women wear the turban. So it was a little weird. I was like, maybe, you know, I was like, maybe Nick hasn't really studied the, the Quran, which is uniquely and starkly different from the Quran, from the Holy Quran, if you will. You know, because if he did, he would see that none of them align together. None of these things even make sense. Either there's a hell or there's not. Either Jesus' blood washes away sin or it doesn't. And if the Holy Quran of the Moorish Temple Science denies that, Nick, how can you try to sort of amalgamate all of these principal thoughts together to develop your own non-biblical worldview? But, but Lisa, this is what I think. This is what I think happened. You know, what happened with Nick does not happen in a vacuum. You know, you know, you, you learned it. We already know it. It's, it's urban religious syncretism. And there's a long line of it. We, when our ancestors came from West Africa, Coco Angolo, uh, when we were transported over to America, we held on, our ancestors held on to many of their, their African religions and then in many ways began to combine them with, with other thought, with other Christian appeals. So <laughs> they, they flowed in line one with another. So that continues on 1890, 90% of African-Americans are in the South. The great migration occurs. Brothers and sisters start moving to avoid the tyranny of the, the Jim Crow South, the bull weevil infestation that occurred that killed sharecropping. A lot of these brothers and sisters began to, to move to the urban centers. When they moved to the urban centers, they encountered a new amount of religious choices that they didn't have before. So they met black Muslims, they met black Jews, black spiritualists who believed that their leaders could exercise divine healing and a number of other ideas. But the church, the inner city urban churches at these time were at capacity because nearly six million people were making the trek up the Delta, across the Western frontier to Oakland and LA and up to places like Harlem. So while they're while the churches are trying to serve the people and the new southern migrants, some of them are being some of the, the brothers and sisters who are accustomed to traditional sort of intuitive churches in the south and look for community ties in the north aren't finding that. But then they run into a person like Noble Drew Ali, who's telling them that they're all powerful, that they are uh, part of the ancient Moabites, that we should praise black pride and black ethnicity and things like that, it drew those folks away, a good number of them, so much so that before he died, he had like 30,000 followers. So this transpires on, and I, I, I think what Nick is doing is what happened right at the, the, the beginning of the Great Migration. A lot of those urban country migrants that were, I mean, those country migrants that were lured away began doing what Nick is doing, amalgamating, syncretizing, taking customs and religious ideas and cultures and combining them together. And that's what Nick, that's what Nick is doing. This has continued and been a pattern throughout the inner city and many of the other urban centers of the nation. We've taken religious ideas and we've, we, we love the, we want the loving Jesus, 
but we don't like the one that uh, is, is bringing judgment and condemnation for sin. We don't want that. So then we, we appropriate an idea of, of relativism, if you will. Well, there's no, you know, morals are based upon your belief system. You know, so that's exactly what it sounded like Nick was doing, because in the midst of him talking about, you know, his his religious ideas and making his religious appeals, he's talking about. You know, having a another baby mom and talking <laughs> talking about how he's made so much money on his headphones and you know all that type of stuff. So Nick is an interesting character. We got to pray for him. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because he's not the only person in a Breakfast Club. I, I watch the Breakfast Club all the time and listen to them because I think it's a, it's it's very interesting to, because if you want to know what's happening in the culture as it relates to millennials and Gen Xs, you. The Breakfast Club is the go-to spot because the That's influences are, are on the Breakfast Club. And so what I thought was interesting is that happens when I see it like all the time when when faith is brought up. Um, right. When, right. When you're with, or I think you wrote an article, was it Dr. Umar who said that? Or it was kind of like this melting pot or a buffet type of faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know who you wrote on. Um yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. But, well, well, what I would say is, is you know, as Christians, if we want to see some of the prevailing cultural, prevailing thoughts and ideas that are influencing us in our context, we need to be listening to stuff like the Breakfast Club. But I would add mm-hmm. to that. Some of my friends recently put me down with um, the Drink Champs podcast by Noriega. Uh, Noriega mm-hmm. is getting a million views and listens on his podcast. And he recently just got picked up by Revolt TV, which is Puff Daddy, which is uh, Sean Combs' station. So mm-hmm. he estimates that he's going to get three million viewers. Well, at the moment, he's bringing in people like Joe Budden. He's bringing in uh, Capone. And he's bringing in Capone, Cormega, you know, a number of guests. But what happens when he starts bringing in like uh, Brother Polite? What happens mm-hmm. when he starts bringing in an Umar Johnson? You know, we need to be on the forefront. I actually, and it's another podcast called uh, Tax Stone, who's another gentleman who's getting a million, you know, listens for his podcast. I mean, what happens when they want some spiritual clarity and they want someone to come on the show to expound on religious ideas? And then their ideas are going to be even more, or spread even more. So we've got to be listening to that. I've actually tweeted Tax Stone. Hopefully he lets me on the show. I heard he talks kind of rough. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I hear I heard he, he talks kind of rough. You know, he's kind of hard on guests, but I listened to a podcast and, you know, he was seeing if he could have a pastor on. So I said, hey, let's, let's give it a go. <laughs> What's interesting is, though, because I was watching, after I watched Nick's last night to prepare uh, for today, because um, I had only seen the clip of Nick uh, when I originally said we should do the interview, but I watched the whole thing. Yeah. Then after that, I watched Snoop's interview. And he was talking about, when him and game wanted to do something in LA with the community. And he was like, game called me. But after he called me and we we talked about action steps, he immediately called Louis Farrakhan and they talked through things that he needed to do because that's his spiritual advisor. Wow. And then when I would go like, you know, if you go like on Jeezy's Instagram, you could see that he, that's TI, Jeezy, all of those guys consult with Louis Farrakhan when it comes to spiritual matters. And so there seems to be consistently a reverence for, for uh, Louis Farrakhan. He's even been on breakfast club. I think 
two times, two yeah, or three two, times. Two times. They, they never ask him any real tough questions. They're, they're very respectful when he's on back. Mm-hmm. They treat him like they're, they're, they're very respectful of him, more yeah. respectful of their Christian guests they have on there. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, it with, you know, they did a good job with A.R. Bernard, I thought. Oh, yeah. I listened to A.R. Yeah. Bernard's interview, and he was expounding on his history as a black nationalist as in the nation of Islam, and they were very respected. But yeah. they're, they're going to ask you some piercing questions. You know, you know. Speaking of the Breakfast Club, I mean, and sort of sort of this urban religious syncretism. You know, Nick had some thoughts on it that were sort of half baked, so pseudo intellectual thoughts. He didn't expound. But it's another rapper out there. I mean, he's in, he's incarcerated at the moment. Which is, his name is Kevin Gates. Mm-hmm. Kevin Gates. That was the one you you talked about. Yes. In your article. Okay. Yes, Kevin Gates. Is is one that has thought through some of his theology a little bit more, mm-hmm. but again, he's very erratic in his thought and his thinking too. But he really influences a lot of people. With so he, it's pretty much the same thing as Nick, except you know, Kevin will he he's influenced by the Bible and the Quran, um, mm-hmm. so he'll pull his van, he'll pull his tour bus over and pray to the east on a whim. Or he'll host Bible readings in the on the middle of the tour bus, but at the same time, you know, he'll he'll engage in threesomes, you know. So I'm like, it's it's very weird uh, what transpires. But I think this is becoming a continuing trend that that Christians just have to be on the forefront. Like we have to be out there visibly in our communities, having conversations with people that uphold these ideas, because oftentimes. We just have to get to the root of the matter of why exactly do you believe what it is that you believe? What happened? And usually, from my experience, it's because they've they've gone through some type of church hurt. Somebody has disrespected them. Someone has called them out of their name. Someone has tried to play them, something like that. And that's caused, for the most part, them to say, now, I'm done with the church. I'm just going to bang with these streets and things like that. So... We've just got to be a visible presence in the inner city, engaging, encountering, inspiring people by the gospel. Mm-hmm. And two, this is, it's so funny. The the idea of kind of mixing the f- different faiths together is not just a concept that's happening in the inner city, but I see it in kind of just young professional settings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, people kind of having this sense spirituality and kind of leaving the church. But if you get to the core, it's the same reason. Oh, and yeah. that's what... Uh, I recently lectured on our incarnational apologetics and the need to be uh, the to live out your faith right, and right. being caring and loving as a, a defense, especially in our community where there's been so much hurt and so much trauma. And sometimes people haven't seen other people live it out. Sure. And yeah. that sometimes could be like you said, if you're talking to them, the doctrinal stuff. It, it can be an obstacle, but when you get to the core of it, it's some kind of hurt that is I, not. I agree 100%. Yeah, I mean, and and some of it is Christians aren't asking enough clarifying questions mm-hmm. because syncretism is not something that's new. It's especially mm-hmm. not new in the inner city. I mean, that's quintessential Gnosticism by mm-hmm. taking, uh, appropriating religious words like Christ, redemption, heaven, and then transposing them uh, with biblical terms to describe their non-biblical notions. I mean, that's what went on technically. So I think we we have to be willing to ask clarifying questions and stop doing so much talking and coming up with a linear 
thought through response to each of their accusations, to each of their accusations, because oftentimes people just really want to be heard. And I, and I, listen, I'm all about theology, apologetics. I think it's important. I write about it all the time, but one of the greatest apologetics, like you just mentioned is loving and listening. Hey, can I take you out for a bite to eat? Can I listen to your story? That is one of the most powerful ways to deconstruct any haughty philosophical argument from my experience. What are some of the questions that you think people need to be asking when they're having these, like when they take somebody out, what are the questions? Cause a lot of times people don't even know what questions to ask. Right. What well, a lot, a lot of times I don't even think we're out there evangelizing like we should. We're nervous to share the faith, you know, this, this, <laughs> I'm in the inner city. So this is what we do. We do, uh, I'm the connections pastor, so I'm always trying to figure out ways. Okay, how can I engage new people? So I, we do that through a number a number of ways. I call it my, macro, mini, and micro ministry. So the macro events are the large, huge scale type events like book bag drives, cookouts. It's more like a, it's more like a like a like an attractional type of model. You come to us. We'll make sure your kids have book bags and shoes and uniforms. We'll fill your belly belly with food. We'll make sure that we have a good time. And then we'll engage in conversation there. The, the micro ones are just day-to-day missional gospel living that we should be doing, neighboring, you know, being kind and affectionate to those that we run in and encounter at our jobs, which we really struggle with a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But the big thing for us is this whole idea of micro is mini evangelism, which is when we set up on a street corner, uh, if it's cold outside, we'll serve some warm soup. It's hot out. We'll give some water, ice or something like that. Um, and then usually when people pass by, they ask questions like, well, what are you guys out here for? And then that's when we have the opportunity oftentimes to share the gospel with folk. But many times it's an opportunity to listen to stories. Hey, man, why, what's, so I, I hear what you're saying, but what's one of the reasons that you don't bang with the church anymore? Like what happened that made you feel like you don't need to be involved? in church or don't want Jesus anymore. And once I, once you start asking questions about why they why folks who don't know Christ have disasso- who who used to attend church have disassociated themselves from the church, that's when a lot of the questions or the answers really start to become unraveled. Oh, so and a lot of times one of my main apologetic tools that I use is apologizing for other Christians that have hurt them. So if a crystal, if a brother has been hurt, disrespected, I say, man, I am deeply sorry that my brothers and sisters have treated you that way. You know, man, they're in sin. Forgive them, man. Count it to my, give it, put it on my account. And they like, and they look at me like I'm like often like I'm crazy. So, but, but that's one of the main type of dialogues. And once people really see how much you care about them, oftentimes that really deconstructs the, the whole, the, the hardness of the heart. But Lisa, it don't always work out like that. You know, sometimes, <laughs> I mean, I've been on the block some days, poked in the chest, yelled that, uh, argued down, told I was stupid, told that I was just regurgitating the rhetoric of the white man and that Christians only became, blacks only became Christians through the violent coercion of their slave masters and I'm stupid. I run into that all the time, but I love it. It's, it's inner city apologetics. It's not just having linear thoughts and arguments prepared, but it's listening at 
asking to clarify, well, 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 sir, how do you, so, so you said it happened through violent coercion. How do you know that? Who told you that that happened? How do you really know that that happened? What do you, do you know that Christianity reached West Africa up into the 16th century with the Portuguese missionaries? Have you heard that story before? Uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? So once you start hitting them with historical data, sometimes they'll relent. Other times they'll just want to continue on in the fight. But I mean, I, it's, it's something to love though. You know, it's, it's urban, it's urban combat for Christ, but I call it sometimes. <laughs> It's funny because that same thing happens in the comment section every time we post something about uh, is Christian the white man's religion. It's yeah. to the point now I just, I let it, I can't, it's no way possible for anybody to manage those well, kinds of arguments. Honestly, honestly, that is, and I know we've done a podcast on it before, but that's the, I guess that is the biggest barrier of why many African-American men specifically are walking away from Christ is because they think Christianity is a white man's religion and feel as though they don't play any role in redemptive history at all. You know, but as I, as we start to debunk that from the scriptures, the fact that African nations are mentioned a thousand times in the old Testament alone, and that many of the Hebrew patriarchs married and had babies with many women of African descent, that starts to really change the heart. You know, once you start running down redemptive history, Moses married a Cushite, Abraham had a baby by Hagar. Daniel married a, an Egyptian woman. And two of the children were part of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, and how Israel is not this monolithic group, but it's a, a mixed multitude of ethnicities that have aligned around Yahweh. And then how, so, so the God, I'm sorry, that was Joseph. So Joseph, so the God, so they heard about the God of the Hebrews at least in back until the time of Joseph. And then came encounter with him in a really powerful way when Jesus became indwelt in flesh and found refuge in Egypt. You know, so once you start like once you start running the biblical narrative about how the gospel found some of its shortest homes in West Africa, specifically North Africa and some in Ethiopia and some sub Sahara nations. That's when I start to see people's heart. But then this is the argument. They say, well, they'll, they'll say stuff like, well, well, uh, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. What are your resources? Where'd you get that information from? That's the white man's resource that told you that. And I'm like, okay, uh, you know, like, <laughs> like, you just don't, like you just don't want the truth, but you just told me about the more simple science and their Holy Quran was wit written by two white men. So like, so <laughs> make up your mind, make up your mind what you want to do here. But again, a lot of times, I mean, so, you know, I run into folks and it's a fast pace, as you know, in our urban centers, it's a fast pace. Sometimes you don't have time to sit down and say, hey, can I get coffee with you? Sometimes you don't have time to say, hey, can you know, can we get together later so we can discuss it? Can I have your phone number? You know what I'm saying? I've tried to get people's phone number on the block. Next thing you know, phone's cut off. I don't hear from them anymore. <laughs> so sometimes you got to shoot the whole, sometimes you have to shoot the whole gospel load right there on the block. Would you, if, if I disprove what it is that you have to say, Will you come to Christ right now? And sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, but it's all it's all fun. It's all enjoyable, I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That's the life uh of doing apologetics in the African American context. But it's not only our, our context because you know, I hear white brothers and sisters talking about some of the things that challenges that they have. Sure. Um 
So we all have our unique our unique battles to to fight. Yeah. For those who are listening, what what other th- comments would you add? Um, if you have any other comments on this issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say, listen, we one of the things that comes to mind is that if we really care about this issue, we ought to be praying for the people that will engage. You know, I think about Second Corinthians, Second Thessalonians three, where Paul is praying, you know, that the word of God go before him and that it would be glorified so that when people hear it, they will be their hearts will be transformed. I would say, number one, you know, be diligently praying for folks that will run into like this. Number two, real simple, don't be afraid of catching the L. You know what I'm saying? You're going to lose, like, you are not going to understand all the convoluted, half-baked nuances of philosophies that people hold in the inner city. So therefore, you ask the clarifying question and relieve yourself of the burden of needing to know everything. You know, (laughs) I don't need to know everything about the origin and the epistemology of the Moabites in order to for someone to come to Christ. The knowledge that I communicate is not what's bringing them, it's the Holy Spirit. But I whip out, I whip my knowledge out of my apologetic bag to deconstruct their argument so that they so that I win them to Christ. So I think a lot of times we get caught into, oh, I need to, I, I need to have read all, through all of this systematic. I need to read through this biblical theology. Oh, I don't have enough urban resources, so therefore I don't know if I can really engage. Like one of the most practical ways is to ask questions and follow up with people and not be afraid to not have the answers, you know? And I mean, the, the last thing I say is, I think about Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather is a boxer that's not gonna go toe to toe sparring with you, trading punches. What he's gonna do is be really clever and he's gonna fight on his grounds. You know, a lot of Christians try to get out here on the blocks, in the inner cities. We try to have a clean linear argument but then we're not even tight on stuff like Christology or the Trinity, or we don't have like a little, we, we don't, we don't give ourselves a cheat sheet with verses that we can turn to if we're trying to show somebody that the Trinity is real or the deity of Christ or the transmission translation of scripture. So I would say, listen, we got to fight on our grounds, but understand the historical context by which all of this stuff is sort of developed. I'm just like for me specifically, it, it was very important for me as a gentleman that was born in the suburbs to, that came and transplanted in the inner city to unlearn some things that I thought I knew about the city. So I had to not only survey the scriptures, but I had to survey the context. You know, <laughs> what has caused the trifold, the trifold pathology of degradation in the inner city, of, of poverty, of fatherlessness, of uh, chronically underfunded schools, like what has caused this? And then how does the gospel speak to that in a very relevant way? You know, because my so- my social justice, me walking out Micah 6, 8 and doing justice is an apologetic in itself. A lot of times I've noticed people are not drawn because I have some tight linear theological arguments. They're drawn to Christ because they see me at parent-teacher conferences, talking to the teachers and knowing the administration. So I'm trying to get to the heart of some of what's happening with this urban catastrophe. And then I'm inserting the love of Christ and whipping out my apologetics if I got to. You know what I'm saying? So so like 
we, we have to take a multifaceted approach. Not everyone is going to be as smooth as William Lane Craig. Not everybody is going to be the <laughs> apologetic beast, you know what I'm saying, of Pastor Eric Mason. But but there are some steps that you can take to not only tighten up your argument, but also infuse the love of Christ through your apologetic by loving on folks. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's what I, so I, if I ran into Nick Cannon, I, I, w- I would say, I would, I would probably call him Mr. Cannon. And I'd see if I could sit down with him and talk to him. And if he could explain to me what exactly, like, what exactly do you mean? Where are you getting this from, Nick? Have a real legitimate conversation about it. And then see if he, uh, see if he even knew about some of the historical development of the Moabites or the historical development of the, the, the Moorish temple science. And I, I would sort of fight on that ground. So, but again, sometimes you might just get poked in the chest in the inner city. You got to be prepared for that too. So, you know, it's just, Come out with your guns blazing. You know, you just come, <laughs> just, just be ready either way. Yeah. And I think that's so important, critical to to have those conversations and be courageous enough to sit down and talk with people. And, right. you know, in our generation, we got Twitter fingers. We like to, <laughs> you know, feel like we want an argument over uh, 144 characters and that's yeah. just really not realistic we have to really engage with people sure. and have conversations offline in order to really show the love of God and be a reflection of that like one of, one of the things one of the techniques that I employ is I say listen you know if it's a guy that is di- his faith is diametrically opposed to mine I say stuff like hey hey bro why don't we do something like this how about I give you this short pithy book for you to read and then I'll read one of your resources. And then how about we have a dialogue or discussion about it? And we'll see what conclusions we ultimately come to. Um, and often that really just, a lot of times it strengthens my argument. Uh, it gives me something to blog about for sure. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Definitely gives you something to write about. But but the fact that you take you take time, take care to, to really read through the material. And, and like Kanye said, do the education. You know, it, it, it provides benefits and real dividends. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, ur- it's urban religious syncretism at its best. It's happened with liberal theology. It's happened with Gnosticism. It's happened with our ancient ancestors up until slavery ended in 1865. It occurred, you know, during the Civil War period. It occurred during Reconstruction, the Great Migration. It's occurred up into the civil rights movement. It's not going anywhere, but we have to stop being technical leaders and become adaptive ones that get ahead of this as opposed to trying to fix the issue when it occurs. So that's what I would say. What resources would you recommend and how can people get connected to you? Okay, resources. Um, There's a few good books. You want me to grab? I I could grab. They're called uh, Defending the Black Faith by Cleanery and Usury, which is proven to be very helpful. I'm reading this book right now. I hope it don't start too many fights, but it's a great book. It's called White Rage by Carolyn Anderson. Hope I don't start too many fights, but it's a great book. It's a, it's a great book. It just given it gives me the historical context of how this stuff developed, which is a great resource. Um, of course, you can go to my blog, IamErnestGrant.com. Um, I've got some stuff on there, um, not only about apologetics, but urban inner city ministry and how we can execute that. And, uh, my father in the ministry, Pastor Doug Logan, he's got a book called On the Block, developing a, bibl- a missional picture, a biblical worldview, which is a great resource as well. So, yeah, get those resources, do some reading, do some dialoguing. You know, 
you know, and get some contextualized resources. You know, I, I think, you know, w- without saying it, I mean, we, we read a lot of stuff, and, which is great. Um, but oftentimes we don't read material that specifically addresses the the context that we're in. So we not only need resources, but we need to be able to contextualize those to apply in our context. So one good book, uh, Urban Apologetics by Pastor Chris Brooks. Great, great read. Um, read anything by Sue Chan Ra. You know, all of that stuff is great. Yes. And go to Jew 3 Project. Get on Jew3Project.com and read some stuff too. Awesome. Man, Thank you. We have a little bit of stuff out there. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but these, the, these videos are very helpful. You know, they're super helpful. So I look yeah. watch them. So it's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So definitely. Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Grant. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at Jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it